Hebrews 2. And just a reminder, we do have a prayer gathering tonight, 6.30. Anybody can come to that, please join in prayer. And if you would, pay attention in your bulletin. We need candy for the trunk or treat. Um, lots of information in there, so please turn your attention um, there when you get a chance. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week, verse 10, and read through the end of the chapter, verse 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Oh, Heavenly Father, there are some challenging truths here, heavy truths, beautiful truths. I pray, God, that you would Calm our hearts to hear your word. Shut out all distractions from our minds so that we can focus our attention on what you are saying about your son here in this passage and lead us to love him, worship him, obey him, and come to him as our high priest. So please, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week when we came to verse 10, I spent a few minutes on the word that my translation uses. We're told there in the ESV that he is a founder, the founder of our salvation. And I talked about the variety of words that are used in different translations. And there is no real agreement on which one of the words is best to use there, but it seems that pioneer gives the broadest and maybe the best sense of the meaning of this word in this passage. Because Jesus is not only the first to enter into glory through suffering, but he makes it possible for other people to follow behind him. That's what a pioneer does. He blazes the trail, leads the way for others to come behind and so he entered into the glory that Psalm 8 speaks of, that's quoted here in Hebrews in verses 6 through 8. Glory that was meant for mankind, but for a little while he was made lower than the angels. 
Jesus was made lower than the angels, meaning he came into this world of suffering, being made lower than uh, even the angels to experience all the things that mankind would experience in humiliation and suffering here on earth. And so Jesus was the first to enter into that glory. He had to become a man to achieve the promised glory for mankind, for us and we get to follow behind him to receive what he has done for us. That's where we were last week. And I remind you of that, not just to get us back into the flow of where we were, but to say something else about the meaning of this word, this founder, this pioneer that will help us in our passage this week. And so if the word pioneer gets at uh, the meaning of entering into glory first, there in Psalm chapter 8, it seems to me that champion, another sense of that word, helps us to make sense of what is left in chapter 2. And just so that we're on the same page, I do not mean champion in quite the same way that we usually use that word, say, in sports. Because what does it mean in sports? It usually means first place, best of all the other teams. And Jesus certainly is that, but that's not where I'm, where I'm trying to go here. And I don't think that's what the word champion necessarily means when used as a translation. The kind of champion that I have in mind is one who steps forward as a representative for the whole. That kind of champion. A leader, but more than just a leader, a representative. And the picture I want you to have in your minds is, is David and Goliath. In ancient times, there was a practice in warfare that opposing commanders might agree to. They would take the best man that they had in their army and set him forward as a representative for the whole. It would spare a lot of life, would it not? Here's our best man. You take your best man. They will fight it out, and whoever wins is the winner of the whole thing. In the biblical story, Goliath stepped forward for the army of the Philistines. And if you remember it, every day he would come out and he would announce that, you know, he's out here to fight. Who among you will fight for, fight for your army? He would blaspheme the name of the living God. And every man in Israel who heard him would shake in his boots until David came along. One of Israel's own. He was willing to step out from his band of brothers, put on the armor, and go out and fight the giant. And so here, that's the sense of champion that I mean. Mankind needed a kind of champion, a representative leader, one of us to step forward, to be the savior that we need. And there was nobody else in the human race who could do that. If we were to go out and search for the best human being alive, and after weeding through all the candidates out there, we find him, the humblest, meekest, kindest, most generous human being on all of the earth, that person, as great as he or she is, still needs a Savior. Even though he is the humblest, meekest, kindest, most generous person on the earth, that person still needs to be saved from his sins. He needs forgiveness. That person still lives under the curse of death. And so there is no place in heaven for even the best of sinners. 
Perfection is required to live where only holiness can dwell. Sinful man is incapable of living in the atmosphere of heaven. Just like we are incapable of going and living under the sea, you know, with all the creatures down there. We're incapable of going and living in outer space. Now, I know we can modify things to live there for a period of time, but I'm talking about in our natural kind of habitat. We can't breathe down underneath the water. We can't breathe in outer space. We are not fit for those places. Our inability to breathe creates a barrier. And our inability to live in perfection creates the barrier for us to live in heaven. So here is the brilliance of God's plan. He would send us a champion. And it couldn't be that God would just form another man out of the dust like he did with Adam. Have you ever thought that before? Like, well, why couldn't God just make another guy? He did it once. You know, form him out of the dust of the earth and breathe life into him. Why couldn't he have just done it that way and the Son of God take that body then and live and die for men? But if you think about it, that man would have been a new race of men, separate from the fallen race of Adam. We needed a champion descended from our people, a man who would step forward out of the sufferers, out of Adam's seed, the offspring of Abraham, a son of David. That's what we needed. And so the eternal God, the Son, infinitely righteous, he entered the human race into the womb of a woman named Mary. He was protected from her sin being conceived, not from a man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. He grew up in a fallen and cursed world, knew and experienced the weakness of men. He lived lower than the angels, struggling and suffering as a genuine human being. He's one of us, but he's also God. A man from the line of Adam, but he's sinless. He's the Son of God from heaven, so he is infinitely righteous. He is the God-man. And so his death then that he could offer would be one of infinite worth to cover the sins, not just of one person, but to cover the sins of everybody. This was God's brilliant plan to save mankind. And our scripture passage this morning deals with these truths. Verses 11 to 13. They stress the Son's solidarity with those who need to be sanctified. His solidarity with those who are sinful. See that in verse 11. Look at what it says. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What's he saying here? He's saying that there is one who is holy, and then you've got this group of people who are unholy. How can they be brought together? He is the sanctifier. 
He's the one who is holy and is able to make holy. And who are we? We are the ones who need to be sanctified because we are sinners. How can these two extreme differences, polar opposites even, perfect righteousness, how can he be joined to us? It seems impossible. But it's brought about in the plan of God in a common humanity. We are joined together in a common race. We're joined together in a brotherhood by the flesh. So it says that is why he is not ashamed to call them, meaning us, brothers. It's a pretty extraordinary thought. That the eternal Son of God, always perfect, always holy, would be willing to look at you and be willing to look at me and call us a brother. God has joined himself into a brotherhood with man. And to give support for this statement, the author reaches back into the Old Testament to show that this was told of beforehand. There were prophecies that were given that spoke to this. He gives us one from Psalm 22. He gives us a couple from Isaiah chapter 8. God was going to make for himself brothers and children from the sinners of earth. It was going to happen. But how, right? How is that going to happen? By joining himself with us as a human being. In verses 14 to 18, we have a beautiful description of some primary reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to become a man. If the people of earth were ever going to have a hope beyond this world, there was no other way to be saved. None other. This was it. There were no other possibilities in the way that God had made the world, had made us, how we needed to be cleansed, all of that. There was only one way, and it was in the, in the mind of God. Nobody else could have thought this up. So we could have thought up all sorts of other worlds that could have been made and all sorts of other scenarios, but the way that the world was made, this was the only way for mankind to be saved. He had to become a man. He had to take on our flesh and step forward for us. But he also needed infinite worth. And how could he do that unless God himself would become that man? So in verses 14 through 18, that is, no pun intended, it's fleshed out for us. He's getting down into the nuts and bolts of the human condition and what we need. He's showing the heart of God as he looked down on us and saw us where we were. What did he see that moved his heart with compassion? Why would he care? This is Psalm 8 again. Why would you think of us? Why do you look down and think anything of lowly me? It speaks to the heart of God, that he's merciful, that he's compassionate, and that he cares about sufferers like you and like me. So when he looked down, he saw helplessness. He saw slavery. He saw suffering God is merciful toward those who are hurting. Jesus proved that by, by becoming flesh and blood and coming down here to do what he did. 
he demonstrated the love of God for sinners. That's what verse 14 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Since that's what we have. That's our condition. Jesus, our champion, likewise partook of those same things. But for what purpose? Why did he do that? What did we need so desperately that he would come down here for us? We're given at least three reasons here at the end of Hebrews 2. Three reasons. When God looked down, he was moved with compassion and determined to save men by sending his son to become a man. Three reasons. That men were enslaved by death and the devil, that's first. Secondly, that men were stained by their own sin. And third, men were suffering. I'm going to deal with each of those. So number one, what is it that Jesus came to do to meet our condition? We're told that Jesus came to rescue us from death and the devil. Again, look at verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so here we are told that death, the fear of death, and the devil, they are all intertwined and Jesus came to do something to free us from all of those. This is where I want to bring it back to the idea of the champion. So do you remember in the Old Testament where the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt? Pretty big theme in the Old Testament, pretty big story about God's salvation and what he did for his people. Do you remember that? It sets the tone for the rest of the Old Testament, and in some ways it sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. That God is a deliverer. He is a miracle-working, life-changing deliverer to save helpless people who are enslaved. But before he does that saving, God looks down on those enslaved sufferers and he hears them. Exodus chapter 2. So this is pre-burning bush this is pre, you know, kind of talking about Moses going out there, you know, and he's out there in the wilderness. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So here is a moment when God is looking down from heaven, and he is seeing the people on earth, his people. And what's happening? They are enslaved. They are helpless. They are groaning for help. They can't do anything to save themselves. And God thought of them. And he remembered his covenant they had made with Abraham. What does that mean? He remembered his covenant with Abraham. 
It remains that he remembers the promises that he made to Abraham. What were they? They all concerned his offspring. They were going to have a land. There was going to be many of them. They were going to be great because they had a great God. He had made promises to them. But now where are they? They are enslaved in Egypt. They do not look like they are triumphing, do they? With a great God and with a great land. They have no land of their own. God is compassionate to the helpless and the enslaved. I think there's a great connection here with what he looks down and sees in the human condition when the Son of God came down to the earth. I think we see something of that, the connection that's being made by that author in here in verse 16. It's almost like, it seems like it's just kind of a throwaway verse. You know, sometimes it's like a bridge to something else. He says there in verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's what God was doing back there in the Exodus in Egypt. But it's still what God was going to do through the Son of God. And so in Exodus, God remembered his covenant with Abraham that he made with his offspring who were suffering there on earth, his flesh and blood. Verse 16 tells us that God helps the offspring of Abraham, not just those who come immediately from his flesh, but those who follow after Abraham's faith. So there's a kind of offspring, a greater offspring that comes from Abraham, and it's not just by his skin or by his bloodline, but a kind of offspring that also includes people like you and me, people like those over in Turkey, to the far corners of the earth, they would have the offspring of Abraham having his faith. There's an interesting note, I think, here in verse 16, in the word that means help. The word help. It says, he helps the offspring of Abraham. It literally means to take by the hand, like a parent does with a child when he reaches down grabs their hand and leads them across the street, leads them trying to keep them safe. And this same word is only used one other time in this letter, and it's in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. And again, I'm making a connection here. I want you to see the connection back to the Exodus. The Exodus. Listen to what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31, by the way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So I think the person who's writing Hebrews here is seeing the connection between what God did in the Exodus and that first kind of slavery that his people had and the kind of slavery that he looked down onto the earth and saw us in, in our sin. Greater slavery than bondage to Pharaoh, but a sin slavery in bondage to the devil that he would set us free from. He helps. He took Israel by the hand and led them out of Egypt. And so now he takes us by the hand and leads us out of the bondage of death and the fear that it comes with it.
That's what he's saying here. We're being led out of a greater slavery by a greater champion than Moses. So this salvation story in Exodus is a picture of a greater salvation story to come. There's something much worse than people just not being able to get several hundred miles to a destination to the land that they've been promised. The greater barrier is the devil and our entrapment to our own sin. How will we be saved from that? And without getting into all the details of how Jesus comes to destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver out of slavery all those who suffer under the fear of death, we're told here that our champion simply does this through death. Do you see that? He partook of the same things, our flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's how he would accomplish our great exodus from sin, through his own death. And much of the remainder of this book is going to deal with this, the death of Jesus and all that it accomplished. But like David, who stepped forward as the champion of Israel and killed the giant, so Jesus steps forward out of humanity, a common humanity, and he kills death and he kills the devil. And like Moses, who was chosen by God to come forward as a kind of deliverer for Israel, while they suffered as slaves under Pharaoh, so Jesus came forward to set humanity free. He is our champion, and he gained victory for us by his death. And so he killed death. He struck death with his own death, and he frees us from its fear. And so what Jesus has done, he has robbed Satan of the fear of death that he holds over the human race. How does he do that? What does that even mean? Well, hopefully you know it. Hopefully in your own heart, death no longer strikes the same kind of terror in you now that you believe Christ. Because now you know that death, death is an actual doorway into joy, a greater joy than you have right now. Would you not confess that? Can you not say in your heart of hearts that, yes, you don't want to experience the actual pains of going through death itself, but there's a kind of joy on the other side of the river that you're kind of peeking your head over and looking at by faith right now that you cannot wait to get to, right? So we don't have this kind of enslaved fear that I must stay here no matter the cost clinging to this world as if it's all I've got. Jesus came to set us free from that. So death no longer has us chained to this place. As a slave to this world, no. If I, if I die, I have Christ. And a lot more of him than what I've got right now. And there better be joy in the hearts of God's people as we think about that. We are willing, or should be willing, 
to sacrifice earthly pleasures for the promise of a place beyond this world. And that is what we're going to read when we get to Hebrews chapter 11. If there's any chapter in this book that anybody knows, it's chapter 11 because it's called the Heroes Hall of Fame of Faith or however it's termed. But what does it describe there? It describes a very strange people. What do they do? They give up what is clearly in front of them that everybody else would grab hold of and they would deny that because they can see beyond it to another world where greater promises are for them. So it says that Moses was willing to give up the fleeting pleasures of sin living in the house of the prince of Egypt. He had everything in there. And yet he was willing to give that up in order to try to protect God's people. Now he did it in his own way. He did it in a fleshly way. But he was willing to give that up to serve the people of God later on to lead them to a better promised land than Egypt with better treasures because it speaks of a world still yet to come. So you and I had better know that there is something better for us than this world and death leads us to that. We're not afraid anymore. The leverage of death is no longer in Satan's hands. I think a right piece of encouragement here is that you and I, if we say that we confess that, and I can hear some amen in, you know, so we say we confess that, we should be living like death no longer enslaves us then. Someone should be able to look at my life and look at yours and see there is something different that I treasure than they do. The unbelieving world makes all of its plans based on the time that they think that they have but here between now and death. All plans, all thoughts are spent on those things. But the Christian, it should be seen in the way she lives that her plans take eternity into account. And so she's not after mere pleasure. Her money is not spent and saved based simply on what she needs for retirement or how much comfort she can gain from all of her resources. No. She's thinking about eternity with her income. She's building a kingdom with her time. She's investing in people who will live beyond their years on earth. That's what should be happening with the Christian if he or she says, they are no longer enslaved by the fear of death and the devil. A church should not resemble a well-run corporation because it does not have the values of one. And so the church, this church, we're talking specifically about Kaz Church, but the church in general as well, the individuals that make up the body of Christ, it should be a strange sight on earth people should look at you and think what is that person thinking why on earth would a young lady move to the other side of the earth and learn a new language that's crazy doesn't she know that she lives in the best country that has ever been made doesn't she know all the freedoms that she'd be given up by going there what does that speak to of a better world yet to come. 
So what we do with our money, the things we spend it on, the way that we spend our time, somebody should be able to look at Theodore and say, ooh, he's a strange bird, that one. And maybe he is anyway, right? <laughs> but we have a different value system than the world because the world is enslaved by death, its fear, and the devil. But the child of God has been set free by the death of Jesus Christ. Number two, Jesus became our champion to save us from the stain of sin. The stain of sin. It's the great barrier. It's, it's, it's what the entire scripture, from the fall in the garden to the glory in Revelation from beginning to end, is the God who must overcome man's sin. That is the Bible's story. That's what's happening there. He created a people for himself that he would dwell in their midst in the garden. So the garden is a picture of heaven. God is there in his temple with his people. And they obey him, and they love him, and they worship him, and they have dominion. All is well in the garden. And then comes sin. But that does not stop the God who has determined that he will live with his people. But how? Sin stands in the way. Holy God cannot live, must not live in the presence of sin. That is not heaven. He must do something about it. And he will. There on the Exodus, when the people of Israel were traveling, God said, I'm going to be with them. I'm going to be in their midst. How did he do that? He set the tabernacle there in the middle of the people, and his glory was inside of it. He was there in the midst of that sinful people. But he had to set up some boundaries, didn't he? In the law, he told them how they could approach him, who could approach him. Only once a year, one man could enter into the most holy place. Once a year. And what did that man have to do? He had to go and kill an animal before he could even enter in there. There needed to be blood for that man to enter into that tent. But God said... I'm going to be with my people. Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Meaning that they would have no sin someday because God abhors sin. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. But in those days, sins had to be daily dealt with daily dealt with, once a year, high priest into the tabernacle, most holy place. Sin was still a barrier back then to his holy presence. But then you fast forward all the way to the end of the scriptures, all the way there in Revelation chapter 21, and we're told what will happen in the last days and into eternity. Listen to what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
That's what's going to happen always and forever. And not, there will no longer be a need for sin to be dealt with. That barrier has been swept away. What happened? Why is that not a barrier anymore? It happens by a greater high priest. That's what we're told here. A greater high priest who comes and deals with sin once for all. Not like all those other high priests who came before him. They were all sinners who offered up animals as sacrifices. And if you think about it just logically, how does animal blood wash away human sin? It doesn't. It doesn't. It was never meant to. It spoke of greater blood and a real spotless lamb who would come as a human being and give his life for sinners. So only a man could pay for man's sin. But for his payment to have infinite worth, he needed to be an infinite God at the same time. So there he is, all joined in one. There is only one man then who could pay this price for all the sons of glory that would follow behind him. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. All of that and more is packaged neatly into verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation, we don't use that very often, do we? A couple of meanings there. It means to cover sin. It certainly deals with the covering of our sins. But it also means that he has satisfied a wrathful, holy God against sin and against sinners he has satisfied the demands of a God who is holy to sinners who are not, and he has quelled his wrath with his blood. Wrath that was to be set on me and you. And Jesus stepped forward as our champion and paid our price. All of that, verse 17. Lastly, Jesus became a man because men were suffering and his heart delights to help them. We need to hear this. We need to hear this, don't we? We know, do we not, that there is suffering in this world. Things do not go as we plan. Often things go much worse than we would have planned. It's a hard world to live in. There's lots of joys to be experienced here. I don't want to... Say it's just all, no, 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 no. God has given us a great deal of blessing to live with while we're here on earth. But there's also a great deal of pain. And so Jesus looked down from heaven and determined that he would come as a man to meet the needs of sufferers. And he delights to do that. And he still delights to do that today. I think what he's getting at here, I think he's getting at 
the fact that Jesus, our high priest, deals with sins in our place all by himself so that we can be cleansed. There's something external that happens in the plan of God that only Jesus can do. We did not participate in this. Our salvation came through Christ alone by his blood alone. He achieved that. You and I did not. We heard this morning about how people in all sorts of other religions talk about uh, working their way to God. They participate in some way in their salvation. The Christian does not say that. Christ alone has achieved our salvation. We do not work for it. We receive it and then do good works. But our works do not contribute to anything. And so Jesus has accomplished it all at the cross, external, external. That's the kind of high priest we had. He went into the most holy place by himself, offering up his blood to God for me and for you. But there's also something that as a high priest, he continues to do. There's a very personal ministry. I think that's what he's getting at here. It's not just external. He's doing a work right now internally in me, and we need to know that that you are a sufferer here on earth and there is one place that you can go with your pain. And it is to one who has come to this earth as a man suffered here. He knows what it's like. That's what he's saying here. He has endured more suffering than you can imagine. He was holy and spotless and perfect and sinless and yet he had all of it poured out on him. We cannot fathom the suffering that Jesus endured. We cannot. We simply need to be told that he did suffer. Therefore, he can sympathize, brothers and sisters, with your suffering. You need to believe that this morning. But as Christ looks down from heaven as your high priest, and he sees you sitting here, he knows everything that you are experiencing, and he delights to help you in a time of need. So will you look to him as the high priest that he is, set out as a champion among men, the only one who could bear your sin, and right now the only one who can truly help you? As your high priest, he hears and he has the power to change and give hope and give comfort and to meet needs beyond anything that this world can offer. That is what he is for you. I think so often we think that God looks down kind of with a disdain or we're such an inconvenience. Man, those people never run out of needs. That's us projecting our hearts onto God. That's the way that we are as sinners when we see all sorts of needs. But the heart of Christ is not so, and nor should his people be. He looks down and he sees suffering and he delights to run to it. That's why he left heaven and he ran to meet our need. And he still runs to meet our needs today. So what can you bring to Christ today, your high priest? What do you need? You simply need to understand that he has a heart to help. So it says here, because he has himself suffered when tempted... He is able to help you, you, when you are being tempted and when you suffer. When you come to him, by faith and believe, he delights to help. This is the champion that we have. Our death-conquering, devil-destroying, sin-bearing, fellow-suffering, high priest 
who is there to help today. I hope that you find comfort in these truths, find comfort in a very real God who became a very real man to rescue us from our bondage and to give us loving access to help from heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this passage of Scripture that deals with the glory of our Savior in becoming a man. He stepped out from among sufferers, the only one who was able to bear our sins and pay the price. And there he sits right now in heaven, our high priest at your right hand, and he is able to help in a time of need. You're showing us your heart here, that you hear people when they cry out. You heard those people so long ago in Egypt when they cried out in their slavery, and you looked down and saw people enslaved by their sins and by death and by the devil, and you determined, God, that you would set us free by your Son. And so may we be a people this morning with praise on our lips to a God like that who would not leave us in our helpless condition you determined to be a helper. Thank you, God, for our champion, Jesus, and may we walk out of this place today hearts lifted up in praise to him, calling on his name in our suffering. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, the strong name of Jesus. Amen.